Welcome to Practically Pastoring, a podcast by pastors for pastors who want to share ideas, become better shepherds, and have a good time with friends. My name is Frank Gill. I'm a campus pastor in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I'm your host for this show today. I'm here with the guy who's the best man at my wedding. He's the lead pastor of a church in Baltimore, Maryland, Jeff Simpson. Hey, hey. Down in the hot and humid Sumter, South Carolina, I am here with the very creative campus pastor, Delmar Pete. Hello there. This senior pastor is one half of the highly acclaimed and almost award-winning podcast, The Morning After Ministry Show, all the way from sunny Safety Harbor, Florida, Andrew Larson. Greetings, one and all. And lastly, he is the lead pastor of a church in Tarpon Springs, Florida. He is a Jacksonville Jaguars fan for some reason, and he is the other half of the almost award-winning podcast, Timothy Miller. Howdy, boys and girls. Guys, uh... You know, some of us are starting to open up soon, but like even then, our staff meetings um, might still be on Zooms. We still probably are using Zoom a lot. We're using Zoom right now, and I have to say this: of all the Zoom meetings I have every week, this is the most exciting one so far. Uh, I love talking to you guys. But how are you guys handling like Zoom fatigue and using Zoom? How's that going on for you guys? We had a prayer time yesterday that we were scheduling as a church. Just like a hey, come to the worship center, socially distant. We're gonna we're gonna pray. Wear your mask, but spread out and pray. And about uh, a few hours before, someone said, "So is this gonna be available on Zoom?" And I just wanted to cry because <laughs> I just don't like I don't like Zoom anymore. It's not fun. This is this is great. You guys look fantastic, but it just made it it hurt my soul. Not that someone wanted to be involved and pray for their church and for their friends and family in the church, but that I had to figure out how to move cameras around and do all that one more time. We shifted to almost an entirely work from home standpoint as a church. So we've been doing all of our elder meetings, leadership meetings from zoom. And I've actually really enjoyed them. I can, I can end an elder meeting, step out of my home office and right into the living room with my family. So that part of it has been awesome. I miss, I miss people and faces, but I I'm kind of loving getting to, hang with my fam a bit more. Yeah, Zoom in my household is a double-edged sword. Same as you, because it's like, yeah, I can work from home a little bit, but my wife's a teacher. So she had to do her whole last run teaching nine-year-olds on Zoom with our two and three-year-old running around behind us. And it's just been brutal. And I think for me as a, as a preacher, I, I don't know about you guys, I hate watching myself after I preach. And now it's like, I can't get away from that receding hairline. And oh my gosh, the, the 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 good thing is I don't have to listen to myself. Um, that's the people listening right now who have that trouble. But yeah, it's it's a double edged sword. I mean, I don't have a staff, but I do have a volunteer team that meets every Monday night, and uh, I will say that it has made our meetings more efficient. Um, so that part of it, I I like um, because it kind of removes all the like banter and stuff from. Um, the, I don't know what it is. My church's personality and my personality. Are, go well together because we're all kind of a little bit uh, sarcastic in our humor. And like, we like to kind of razz on each other and banter and that really can make meetings take a long time. And for whatever reason, it doesn't happen like that on zoom, but yeah, I'm in the same boat. I'm kind of over it. Like I'm tired of like prayer meetings on zoom and stuff. So, but no matter how long the, the zoom calls go on for us, there's still going to be the proverbial, how do I make this work? For somebody yeah. in our like yeah. every single time, whether it's an mm-hmm. elder or a prayer gathering, someone is 
I can't make this work. I can't see me. I can't hear you. And yeah. it's the first 10 minutes of every Zoom call. Well, and last <laughs> night we were we were on a prayer meeting and one of the people on the meetings, the internet was really bad. So like it was doing that thing where the audio is like, uh, uh, and we and it was like so frustrating. And I was, I don't know if I must've just been in a bad mood, but I was like ready to just like click, leave the meeting and end it for everybody. <laughs> and it was a prayer meeting. So, but yeah, they figured it out, but that's the kind of stuff that's, super annoying and I'm over it. We used to say, you know, what, what, uh, was an email, you know, that we had a meeting. It should have been an email. I think now I'm learning like, what are some, some meetings that really should just be zoom calls because like Monday night I haven't, I have my advisory board or council meeting. And then Tuesday night I have Deacon's meetings and, and I really like them, but when we meet in person, you can double that time. Yeah. And I think it's cause like I'm driving to a place. So I feel like, man, I'm going to get my social fix cause I'm going out of my house but Zoom calls like, man, I got to get back to uh, my fried chicken and green beans for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're that was so southern, southern, man. You're it a really southern was, man. Cartoon. I'm just oh owning it. I listened yeah. to the first podcast. I was like, I sound like a little mini Perry Noble. And that scared <laughs> Like my wife said that. And I was like, oh, my. Mm, I don't know if that's good or I'm going to go with that's bad at this point. Oh <laughs> I don't know. Delmar's going to go to Bojangles after this. and uh, Oh, my gosh. Get, get a Yo, it's, it's worse. Actually, so I had almost got out of the accent when I was at our main campus. And then now that I'm a campus pastor, I hang out with, like, the people I grew up with. So on a Sunday morning, my my father will come to church and man, Fort's over with. I'm just praise the Lord, hallelujah! Like it's bad. <laughs> my wife's like, you need to go for a cleansing run and just uh, get back talking normal. But yeah, well, Zelmar, it's it's okay to not be okay. You just you just can't stay that way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I man, like moving to the Midwest, like like in Florida, there's like a lot. There's a good balance. There's like some Southern folk that are like probably from Ocala or something or Gainesville. And then like, there's just like this, like non-accent that like just a lot of people in Florida don't have an accent. But then I moved to Arkansas, which was like, people talk like they got molasses flowing out their mouth. Right. And then, <laughs> and then I moved to Wisconsin and people oh, in the don't, Midwest you know. don't, they don't realize they have an accent yeah. and they say stuff like beg instead of bag. And they, I mean, it's a, it's a whole world up here, man. Um, but, uh, but I'm glad you're here though, Mar, because, uh, it's the fact that guys. you just doubled down on a Southern stereotype about grits or whatever. That was amazing. I'm, I'm going to own it, man. I'm just going to own it. I love it. So one last Good. zoom thing, uh, our church, we have a, a fellowship hall and after church every Sunday, it's like, Hey, go to the fellowship hall for donuts and hugs. And clearly we're not going to the fellowship hall for donuts and hugs after church anymore. And so we started a, we called it the fellowship hall zoom. And after our virtual service, it was, Hey, here's a zoom for anyone that wants to sip their coffee and get caught up with people. And week one, it was like 70% of the online audience. Week two, it was like 35% of the online audience. Week three, I showed up and I was like, all right, no one's here. I'll give it five minutes. And then I will cancel this forever. And then you get that email later that's like your Zoom attendees are waiting. I know that's that's <laughs> the worst. Oh, we man. share we share a church Zoom account that's in my email, but so all of the different ministries in the church that are using uh, a the church Zoom account, I'm the one that gets all the emails for it. So we have a, a Bible study on Tuesday nights that I'll get their emails. I'm like, oh no, am I supposed to be in a meeting with somebody right I now? Know. And it scares me every single week. One time, um, so. It, I did a, uh, a launch training for my new campus and 
um, I knew it was like scary because there's like 80, there's like 90 people who are on the calendar invite for the Zoom call. And so I was just like, how is this going to work out? What's a, a 80 person Zoom call going to be like? It was just weird. The Zoom call went great. It was awesome. Um, we broke up into uh, smaller meeting groups, so it was more manageable or whatever. But the following month, um, we were able to meet in person. But someone didn't understand the calendar invite I sent out. So they just copied the previous calendar invite and made their own calendar invite. And so they invited all 80, 90 people from the previous calendar invite <laughs> to their personal family calendar of the Zoom call. And then they realized what they did immediately and they canceled it. And because of that, my entire launch team was like, oh, is our meeting canceled? And I'm like, no. Oh. And so I had to follow up with another oh. email and be like, and I, I felt I didn't want to embarrass her and be like, well, this is what she did. Like, it was just one of those things where it's like, like, like Jeff said earlier, offline, technology isn't our friend sometimes. Like, it's Man. just sometimes it, easy things, simple things just seem really complicated. For Thanks, Brenda. <laughs> Let's dive into some clergy cliff notes, all right? Um, each of us have come up with different stories, articles, or ideas that we found on the internet or just that we found interesting that have to do with pastoral ministry or pastoring our people. And so we're going to spend some time kind of having a conversation with that. And I want to start with uh, with uh, Jeff. Let's uh, let's hear what your cl- clergy cliff note is. So uh, because I live in the liberal north, I am a subscriber to The Atlantic. And um, this, uh, this, this cover story uh, is about QAnon. And, like, I started reading about it, and it was like, dude, this is just like, I don't even know what to think about it. I knew some stuff a little bit, and then you get into all the conspiracy theories. But, uh, I mean, I don't want to get into the entire, like, what is QAnon and Pizzagate and 4chan and all that stuff. I mean, there's <laughs> just so much there. Uh, but my question is, like, how do you guys, or have you dealt with this? And then how do you deal with people that get, like, deep into conspiracy theories? Um, and it seems to be more prevalent on the right than the left. Um and so, like, just I, I'm more I, I'm interested to know, like, what everybody else deals with and, like, how you deal with that. I, I, I think that there is a study. I think Relevant came out with a study that said, like, younger evangelicals are more prone to conspiracy theories than any other people group. So it's not – I mean, I do agree. It's more, like, conservative-leaning. But it's, like, specifically even, like, our demographic, like, younger, like, millennial evangelicals for yeah. whatever reason. I'll say this. In Bible college, there was a week – I specifically remember this – uh, Jeff, you remember John Ramsey? He was my roommate. He was my 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 roommate at the time. John's we a thought- uh, John's a regular listener. What's up, John? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he is. Sure. Um, uh, I remember he either he found it for me or I found that documentary on YouTube called Loose Change, which is all about like nine eleven conspiracies or whatever. And that Monday started a whole week where me and him didn't go to class. We just watched YouTube videos. <laughs> we closed our window and we like everything was on the table. 9-11, moon landing, <laughs> JFK, MLK, <laughs> nothing is real. The I mean, we were freaking out. And I remember like I remember the professor like came up to us like it was like, where have you been? And it was like, we can't trust anything right now. And uh <laughs> I remember it was like Thursday or Friday that week. Literally, we spent five days just only leaving to eat and then coming back and watching YouTube videos. And um, I remember thinking to myself, even if all of this is true, like all of the conspiracies are true, Jesus is still king. And it just proves that we live in a depraved world. Like that's the only thing it proves if these conspiracies are true. With that being said, I don't know if half those conspiracies are true. 
But I do find in my own church, there's a handful of people, you know, that like are, you know, Tom Hanks posted something about like, hey, you should wear a mask. And people are like, what does he have to talk about? He's eating babies or something. And it's like, yikes. (laughs) How did we get here? And and I just think like uh, there are a lot of like conspiracies are infiltrating. And for those situations, I actually have no idea how to handle that because I know those same people are not going to take the vaccine when the COVID vaccine comes out, right? And well, like the the thing about them is like that people when somebody starts going down that road, they like paint themselves into a corner where anything you say to refute them is part of the conspiracy. So it's like yeah. it's almost like there's nowhere to go. Yeah, we dealt with this in our congregation about a month ago and when a lot of the COVID conspiracies were, were coming out and I just saw my Facebook feed flooded with pandemic. Yep. That was it. It was the pandemic video. And even one of our staff members shared it. And in response, uh, a pastor buddy of mine up here and down here, he, uh, he wrote a really, a really good blog article that I happened to share minutes after one of our staff members posted <laughs> the pandemic video. And then I got a text message within 15 minutes did you share that blog because you disagreed with my Facebook post? And I was like, that, that may have been a coincidence, but it was yours and many others. And that's the reason I shared that blog article. So it, it, it got really dicey really fast. Yeah. I think part of it is we don't know enough about the truth <laughs> to, to be able to have a good form opinion either way. I mean, a, a super real thing that happened uh, over here is a buddy of mine, his mother-in-law went to get tested for COVID a couple weeks ago. And uh, she walked in, did, you know, did the nose swab thing or not. She didn't do the nose swab. She walked in and all she did was fill out the paperwork. And they said, it's gonna be like an hour and a half where we can get to you. So she sat there and she was finally like, yo, I'll just go self quarantine for two weeks. I'm not sitting here an hour and a half and definitely going to get it, you know? So she goes home, never gets tested. They call her three days later and tell her she's positive for COVID. That's a true, like, so those are the kind of stories like that are true that don't, help the narrative <laughs> you know no, so like and you help. you know that the kindling is there that's a fire man it just lights it so now you're putting out all these fires because that's a real situation and i think like just having an abundance of just non-anxiety that's the the most practical advice that's been given to me by one of my mentors is no matter what they throw at you don't be surprised and have non-anxiety and lean into we don't know you know, so I, yeah. But my, my thing though is like, like where I wrestle with this is how do we pastor these people, right? Like, how do we how do we care for them? Because what happens is if you latch onto one conspiracy, it's easy to trickle down to all the, like a ton of conspiracies, and you can and like what you said, Jeff, like you can paint yourself in a corner where like, oh, the reason why you disagree with me is because you're brainwashed or you're believing the. I'm the only media. one that's woke, y'all. Yeah. And the thing is, it's like, that's like the same as the person who is like, in a a different way, it's the person who always finds themselves as the victim. And so when anyone disagrees with them, they're just like, Oh, I'm just a victim here. And you can never win that argument. And I guess like, like, I'll be the first one to say like, Dumbo, your story, like, even in that week of super conspiracy theory, like week with John Ramsey and Bible college, there's some stuff to this day, I'm like, yeah, it doesn't add up. Like, I don't get it. But my faith supersedes any kind of conspiracy. So therefore, like, I'm not going to sweat 
QAnon, Pizzagate, or whatever is happening, because ultimately Jesus is still king. The truth in scripture still supersedes all these conspiracies. But some of these conspiracies are also tied to their faith, like flat earth stuff. Like they tie it to, you know, the King James Bible and the firmament. And I'm like, I I don't know how to help you right now. If we well, can't like agree I, with science. I, I would say that like part of it for me, my mind always tends to go back to like things in church history. So this is honestly like a soft form of Gnosticism because what what's essentially happening is people are saying, I don't want to deal with the reality of the world and I want to feel like I'm in control. And um, so if I find out the secret knowledge that nobody else has, then I feel like I'm a little bit more in control. And I, I mean, I think that's at the bottom of what, you know, that's the root of like what people are trying to do. And I mean, you said like, how do you pastor people? It's just like you said, a reminder um, to people that like, yeah, Jesus is King. He's going to establish his kingdom forever. And everything that has been done in the dark will be brought to light. So like if there are these conspiracies happening, it's going to come out one day. And there's always conspiracies, you know, we, or conspiracies, cover ups. You know, you look at Snowden, which wasn't that long ago, but. At the same time, it's, hey, everybody, go inside for three months. You're not allowed to leave. You're oh, not yeah. allowed to socially interact with any other humans. And then act rationally. So have your whole life stripped away from you and then uh, come out and act normal. And that's yeah. kind of what we're dealing with right now. I, 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 before we go into another clergy, Clifton, I do want to ask this one question. because I, I, like, I do love this part of the conversation. If there's one conspiracy that you do give a little credence to, <laughs> what is it? And I'll just say this one. I don't believe in this, but it's I laugh every time because I just bought a bird feeder that pigeons are by the government uh, to surveil <laughs> surveillance us. And the argument is, have you ever seen a baby pigeon? And I'm like, I haven't. Like, I've never seen a baby pigeon before. And so maybe they're robots that are surveilling us. But what is one conspiracy that's like, I don't believe in conspiracy theories, but where's the smoking gun? If you do have one. I mean, I know we're going to talk about masks in a little bit. So, I mean, that's one of them that I'm like, I don't think it's like a global cabal of leaders making us wear masks. But, I mean, of course there's more stuff going on behind the scenes that you don't know about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I said this last time, but, like, I, I've been involved in the foster care system. And, like, there's stuff in the courtroom that, like, attorneys are whispering stuff to each other that they don't tell you about and like stuff's going on behind the scenes. So is that happening at a world political level? I mean, of course. I think, I think the one that uh, I hear and you now, Frank disclaimer, you said I'm not all bought into it. So don't, don't put me in that box, but that whole moon thing, guys, <laughs> the moon thing, the blood, moons? like, I, 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 no, like the fact we went to no. the moon <laughs> landing, oh, the moon right. landing. <laughs> like the actual <laughs> landing. And, you know, so like I was, I was genuinely seeking, and like I find it's it's hard to and this is the thing when you're even a little bit on the conspiracy side and you try to engage someone who's on the the quote truth side sometimes that's a hard like uh, a while back it was on my um it was trending on YouTube Ben Shapiro did a praising the moon landing like a whole deal it was nicely done but I went into the comments and I was like but did we though that was um that wasn't wise that was that was not the wise thing to do but yeah so I think yeah and then you go to bed, you're like, man, am I just crazy? But because people don't want to dialogue with you about it, because this is the standard of truth. 
And it's like, well, not everybody's there in the same way. And I think that it's a, we should be able to have conversations about the conspiracy stuff and not like go to the worst case scenario. You know, the, the first spaceship that went to the moon has the same technology as like a calculator. So like, but hey, if they made it, that's super. That's that's more than I can do. I, also, at the end of the day, I'm not an astronaut. I don't know. I took one math class in Bible college. How, <laughs> what do I know about anything? All right. Now SpaceX will get us there, fellas. I am confident <laughs> that Elon Musk is going to get us there. I mean, he listen. He if he couldn't get the windows on his truck right, I don't know. <laughs> oh, ouch! That's a conspiracy too. He did it on so, purpose to go viral. Do you all remember the? Uh, and again, this is not where I am. Uh, but I just am fascinated by it, by the people that, that go down this. Do you remember the big tornado in uh, Joplin, Missouri in like 2011? There are people that are convinced, you know, there's no way this tornado could have been this strong, been this uh, this devastating. This was a government, you know, this is a, a military experiment gone wrong that they are blaming on a tornado. And there are documentaries and there are people that will swear to this that and the other and i like how do you how do you have an entire city witness something and then people are like nope that's not what happened i it just it just blows my mind yeah i mine i'm pretty sure mine's not a conspiracy at all because it's it's just real whenever <laughs> my wife and i are talking and we just briefly mention a product whatsoever the next time I'm on Instagram, the ads on my stories are for the product that we mentioned every single time. So I'm, I'm like, is this a conspiracy or is this just real? My devices are always listening. And I'm just, random I just products it. too. Ran, so random. <laughs> I have five Google Homes. Bro, so you are trying sure. to get like surveilled. Yeah, I have, I have two smoke alarm nests. I Look, have the doorbell. <laughs> Frank, we said want... in the last episode that pastors shouldn't be flexing, and now you're like, oh, oh I've wow. got five Google Homes. Yes, five Google <laughs> Homes. Well, we do have seven Alexas because it's our home intercom <laughs> system, so every room of the house has one. Guilty. I'm pretty sure I got two Google Homes for free because of Spotify. I got those too. But, uh, Timothy, let's hear your um, clergy cliff because I feel like it has something to do with kind of what we've been talking about. It does, and it's very relevant to even what's happening today amongst most of our churches, especially down here in Florida. Um, the Gospel Coalition recently put out an article titled Four Reasons to Wear a Mask, Even If You Hate It. Uh, we know that the debate is hot, that even just wearing a mask is, has now been politicized, which is what it is. It's just the world that we live in. But, but the argument here. Uh, from this article is that, hey, Christians, do we want to be seen as reckless virus super spreaders who want to put their own freedoms? You know, we want to gather in person as soon as possible. We don't feel like wearing masks unless it's absolutely mandated. Do we want to put that ahead of the health of the larger community? Or do we want them to look at Christians as servants to all willing to forego our freedoms out of Christ-like neighborly love? So, it, it hit me well because last week we just put out a, a blast to our congregation. Hey, we, we need you to wear masks starting on Sunday. Uh, this is what our, our county is recommending, and we're going to follow those guidelines. So it's, yeah, it's, it's out of neighborly love. It's out of respect to authorities. It's out of honoring the weak. And, and all these have scripture to back them up. And it's out of this for the sake of, you know, we, we don't need to flaunt our freedom when, when many times Paul willingly gave up his freedom for the sake of others. So this is kind of where we find ourselves. So where are you guys at here? Have you been dealing with this issue in your churches? Is this just Florida or is this nationwide? 
well, I'm two minutes down the road from you, so I don't think that really counts. But our our statement has been just because you have the right does not make it right. And as as uh, followers of Christ, we are not beholden to any amendment, but we are beholden to the great commandment, and that is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. So shut up and put your mask on, comma, idiot. That's Andrew's pastoral style, by the way, comma, idiot. You know, it- it's funny. I remember when I was um, in my last church in Arkansas, which, by the way, that church, I'm almost certain um, uh, they some of the people would be like, I'm never going to wear a mask or whatever. But I remember we were we lived in a dry county. It's one of the few states that have counties that you can't buy alcohol in. And there was a whole sermon about how drinking is bad, I remember. I remember hearing this. But there was one quote he said that I thought was really good. He said, love limits liberty. And he said that love limits liberty in the sense that, like, because we can love others, um, we can we don't have to have all of our rights. We can lay down our rights and lay down our liberties for the sake of others. And it's, it's, it's ironic thinking that about like I'm sure masks are like such a big deal down there. But I mean, my I was in, I was I I was kind of apathetic about the mask, and I like my thought was like as long as I keep my distance and don't like breathe in someone's spit, maybe I'll be okay, you know. Um, and, uh, and, and I was fine with this kind of being kind of apathetic about mass, but then I went to Texas, um, to speak at a, a thing and, and, uh, no one had masks. And I'm sure there's people in Texas who wear masks, but like when I, where I was like in the, in the DFW airport, I looked at a sea of people with no masks and it freaked me out. It's like the thought of just so many people in one space with no masks while there's a pandemic, just kind of like startled me. And so I was like in a corner by myself with a mask on, just trying to wait till my layover be over. Um, and, um, and that got me thinking about my, my first in-person training. I made a statement where I said, Hey, you don't have to wear a mask. I can't force anyone to do this, but I would, I, but if you would like to, you can. And that, that's kind of like a statement that a lot of churches have been saying, but after going to Texas, I kind of followed up with a video and I said, Hey, you know, this is where I feel like wearing a mask is loving your neighbor. Wearing a mask costs you nothing. And at the most, it disfigures my beard. And I'm okay with that. And then the last thing is this. Even if I'm wrong about masks, even if masks do nothing, I'd rather wear a mask and be wrong about it than not wear a mask and and like actively be able to have the, the spread of COVID-19. And so it's kind of like that um, – uh, Anselm's wager, right? Where it's like, if if I'm wrong, I just wasted, you know, wearing a mask. But if you're wrong, you could kill somebody. <laughs> like, like that's kind of like the, the the my thought process. And what's crazy is my next um meeting, only one person didn't wear a mask, and and they, everyone was complaining like, I hate this mask. It's annoying. It's uncomfortable. But they got it. They understood that like that kind of thing. I don't know if Milwaukee is a lot more gracious than other places, but like. That's kind of what happened here, and that's kind of how I feel about masks. I don't know if there's a lot of science supporting one way or the other that masks really do anything, but I'd rather wear a mask and look dumb and 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 not and not make that mistake than not wear a mask. So is anybody sense. on the other side of this? Because we had people in our congregation, when that email went out, immediately erupted, and I had to field personal phone calls as to why we made this decision, no, it was not political, Yes, I understand 
the idea of a slippery slope. No, this does not violate anything in scripture. Like I had, to, like there was a litany of things. So if you guys had to deal with, I mean, I have, I already had a woman. Um, she posted a Facebook post and connected mask wearing to one day us getting the mark of the beast. I mean, that's what I'm I mean, talking that's about. Where, yeah, absolutely. That's where we're at. I, I, I personally have, have a, yeah, I know. Let that sink in guys. The mask leads to the mark of the beast. And it's like, but, but when I, when I, when I lean into her, like as a pastor, like I need to hear that, you know, because that's for her, that is like real. And I, I think for us in Sumter, um, there is that explosiveness because there is that, you know, we want to do our own thing kind of vibe around here. Now for us, that got eliminated as of tomorrow because uh, yesterday they voted everyone in the city limits has to, and in the county limits has to wear a mask if they're, if they're inside a space. So um, now our neighboring city, Columbia, the capital, they, they did the same thing. They said, if you're in Columbia, you have to wear a mask except in religious institutions. So now all those churches are having to be the bad guys, you know, because, well, we got to wear Walmart, but now you're making us wear it here and it's supposed to be optional and you're just assimilating to the government. And, and honestly, there's, and I know you guys are catching it on both sides. Like, who is the one? Like, who do you listen to? And it's toting the line. And for the record, our, when you say initial, catching it, I don't want. I don't COVID. think that we're we're not catching it. We're yeah. I just want to. Yeah. yeah, I don't want Fair people point. to listen. This, yeah. Yeah. yeah, semantics matter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're catching like heat, right? Because there, thank you. Some people are pressuring but not from you, a fever, but not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, and the pressure is not because of your sinuses for clarity. But yeah, I mean it's it's difficult. And I think I, what I'm doing, and it has really helped, is I'm being very honest with my congregants. When they came to me and they say you don't love me because y'all aren't wearing a mask, I say, I'll be honest, I'm actually hearing that same thing on the other side. And where the tension is, at least in my area, is the people who are not wearing the mask feel like the people who are wearing the mask are judging them. And the people who are wearing the mask feel like the people who aren't wearing the mask are judging them. And I think this is where we really have to speak. To me, it's not to the issue as it's much through the issue. Almost what um, what Frank was talking about earlier, um, we have to go straight to the gospel with it. Because if we don't take it to kingdom-mindedness, we get hung up on every single little issue. So when you park it in, hey, how all right, how do you love your neighbor? Well, that makes that should make that conversation a little bit more palatable. Yeah, for us, we have um, we've I, I, I don't know that we've been through to the other side of the issue. Uh, our county. So Maryland, our governor's uh, Governor Hogan. I'm sure if you've watched the news, you've seen him on there. And uh, he, he's I, I'm really impressed with his leadership. But we uh, shut things down really fast and really hard. And when we came out of it and went into phase one in Maryland, Baltimore County, um, because we have such a high rate of community spread, we stayed in like shutdown for an extra two weeks. So there was a sense in which like you guys down in Florida now, it kind of takes the decision out of your hand, which is kind of nice. Like I didn't have to be the one to say that. Um, But it was interesting to watch the reactions by people when, and this is less in my church and more in the community, when uh, President Trump came out and said that churches should meet, and if the governors didn't, you know, do it, that he was going to override. It was interesting then to watch us as a church say, "Well, listen, we've been saying all along that the government can't tell us what to do. They still can't tell us what to do, and we're still not going to meet." Um, and so that was kind of the other side of it. Now, I will say this: as a pastoral issue, 
Um, I have a person in my church who has dealt with domestic violence and who has had somebody hold their hand over their mouth uh, repeatedly. So sometimes as pastors, I think it's good to be careful to remember that uh, a policy always is going to have exceptions to it and that we pastor people and we don't pastor like systems. So um, that's a sense in which you have a conversation with that one person. But also, like you said, Delmar, like part of the role of a shepherd is to protect the sheep from each other sometimes. And so part of what we're doing is like, I'm not taking sides, but I am shepherding both sides of it and saying like, both of you need to think about loving the other. Uh, you, you know, if you're for masks, you can't think it's not okay for you to think that people who don't want to wear masks are just have bad judgment. And if you don't want to wear masks, it's not okay for you to think that, you know, everybody on the other side is just giving in to some government overreach. Um, and, you know, in the kingdom of heaven, like the pattern in the New Testament is always that the strong lays their self down for the weak. And I think in the mask debate, those who want to wear masks would be the weaker brother. And those of us who don't want to wear masks have the mandate on us to put a mask on for the sake of our weaker brother and not make a thing about it, not make a thing out of it. So what we've done practically is we, we're just not meeting inside. We're meeting outside. Um, now, we're a small church, and there's literally a shady spot under a tree in front of my house because it's a parsonage. And that's where we have Sunday service, like 30, 30-ish people show up, and then there's like another about that many online. And so because we're outside, we don't have to be quite as vigilant. So I can say, like, we're strongly encouraging you to wear a mask, but there are some people who don't. And it's not as big of a deal because we're outside. And, and the science is showing that outside is just like way safer than inside. So that's kind of how we're dealing with it. But yeah, it's, I mean, I don't know if there's anything in this that's not a pastoral issue. You know, all of it is. Right. I mean, it's, uh, it's, I wonder how long we're going to have to deal with this because obviously this is a conversation until there is a vaccine for a coronavirus. And then that conversation is going to come up. It's like, do you make a, I mean, you can't make a mandate that says you have to be vaccinated to come to church. You know what I'm saying? Like, but like that, that conversation is going to be maybe even brought up. It's like, you know, people who are vaccinated, yep. judging people who aren't vaccinated vice versa. And, and we're going to have to pass those type of things. And if the mass is the mark of the beast, the microchips that Bill Gates is putting in us, is for <laughs> sure the mark of the beast um, from the vaccines created. That's sarcasm. If that wasn't picked up. Hey, Andrew. Oh, Hey everybody. Andrew. Let's hear your uh, clergy cliff note. As someone that is not in what I would consider to be a very liturgical church, and in my personal history, I, for the first 27, 28 years of my life, had a very symbolic view of communion as opposed to a sacramental view of communion. I'm fascinated by churches that hold different views. So this week, the ecumenical patriarchate of the, and apparently patriarchate is the office of the patriarch of the Greek Orthodox Church. But so the Greek Orthodox Church has come out and said each individual priest in the United States has the authority to decide what is the best way to administer communion to their church during this time, whether that's communion online, whether that's we're going to give you stuff in a Ziploc baggie, whether that's I'm going to stick it directly onto your tongue, whatever it may be, each individual priest has that right, which is huge 
in the Greek Orthodox Church that they have kind of made that concession to know that each ministry context is different, so each priest ministering to them can be faithful, quote, to the Mother Church of Constantinople for all her spiritual children throughout the world and by doing what is in the best conscience of the priest. And then in the Catholic Church, they are trying to promote this idea of the return of ocular communion, which I've never heard of ocular communion before because I've never taken communion with my eyeballs, but it's the idea that for the vast majority of the history of the Roman Catholic Church before Martin Luther, the idea of an individual parishioner receiving the Eucharist each and every week was not the case. And most weeks, if it wasn't um, Christmas, Easter, or Pentecost, the parishioners would watch the priest take communion. And the doctrine that they were taught was, well, you watching, you witnessing this counts. And so now what we're doing online, you watching the priest at mass, that counts as your communion, which I don't think that's where any of us would line up uh, on our views of communion. But it's just fascinating to me because that's a conversation that we're having once a month. Hey, what do we do this month about communion? Last last month was our first Sunday back meeting in person, and we'd take communion on the first Sunday of the month, and it was, okay, do you know what? We're not going to take communion this month. We spent two months doing communion online, which was, hey, you can either come pick up your elements here at the church, or you can go pick up something of your own. And now that our numbers have spiked in our area this coming Sunday is a communion Sunday, and we're once again saying, what are we doing this week about communion? So my question to you guys is, anybody practicing ocular communion, anybody just saying we're not going to take communion for a little while, or what are we doing? Yeah, we did a, we did a drive-through communion experience um, when we were not gathering on Sundays, and that is the last time we have taken communion as a church, and that was back in April. So we we have not brought it back yet. We purchased all the uh, the nasty prepackaged stuff, so we have it. We just have not administered communion yet. So I'm I'm kind of right there. We're still wrestling with it as a leadership team. We opted not to do it this Sunday, which would have been a communion Sunday for us. So we we just have not gone back to it yet. Same here. We we did ours like ours was like in March was our last one we did, and uh, then um, the theological ditches go so wild. Um, there's a couple groups online. Y'all probably know them. If you just go in there and say what about my communion? Um, it will get nasty really fast. So we're just to be honest with so many other things melting down around us right now, we're like, do we want to add that to, to the, to the, the melting pot? Um, I will say this though, you know, every week we have to load in and load out. Um, and this week I, I've got the prepackaged, by the way, you are right with that adjective, man. That stuff is nasty. Oh, it's I don't gross. Even, that thing holds like an MRE, bro. That thing <laughs> will not expire. I'm telling you, but uh, I think that this week I, I am going to get my load in team because um, it's about 20 of us, 15, 20 of us on a, on a great day. And uh, I'm just going to have a little beforehand with us just so that way, because we are fellowshipping. Um, but as far as in, in part of the whole church, that that has not been um, pulled back in on the conversations yet. So for us, um, and I would just say before, like as we're having this conversation, I assume that for all of us, the method or mode of communion is a second-handed issue. Whether or not we do communion is probably a, more of a close-handed issue. Like we should do it. How often we do it, the way we do it, that's more second-hand or open-hand. Um, so I tend to be a little more liturg- or sacramental in how I think about the nature of what communion is. 
Uh, I would recommend there's a book called A Holy Meal by Gordon T. Smith. That is a really great read. It's a good first read. Uh, if you come from more of a uh, just symbolic background, which I, that's the background I come from, more low church, evangelical, middle of the road. Um, how often do you, do you guys all do communion? Is it once a month for most of you? Once a month. Yeah. Yeah. Once a month. Yeah. So uh, that's the traditions I've grown up in. I've, I have grown a conviction that it should be every week. So when I came here as pastor, we, the first week I was, that was one of the first, the very first thing I changed is we're doing, we're taking communion every week. Um, and I was able to work through all the questions about when it become old and wrote and all that. And that maybe that's another good discussion for another day. But in terms of online communion, um, I do think that, and again, this is open-handed, so I don't, I don't think that it's sin to not do what I'm saying. But for us, we haven't taken communion uh, since we uh, stopped having in-person services, which was March the 8th was our last service. And we take it every week. So uh, it's something that is a central part of our service. And, but at the same time, for me, the nature of what's happening in communion I struggle with making sense of that online. Having said that, I think there's a deeper conversation about what it means to be present with one another. And I do think you can be present with one another like this. So I'm a little bit, uh, I'm not sure about it. And because I'm not sure we're sticking with not doing it. Um, We had a, uh, we did, we did do communion on good Friday. um, And that was online and we did it on zoom and it was weird. Yeah, the nature of what communion is, that it's, for me, you're visibly seeing the body of Christ, not in the elements, but in in God's people gathered together. I think that's pretty tough to pull off online. Um, And I do think that there's something special happening in that moment. I I don't believe in transubstantiation. And part of the reason we're not doing it every week is because we literally had a conversation about not wanting to do ocular communion. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and... uh, you know, Frank, you'll remember this, but there are some Catholic traditions where at the moment of Eucharist, they will say, hold it higher. And that's a leftover from that medieval practice Mm. where the people in the back literally thought you got to hold it higher so I can see the priest breaking the bread and pouring the cup. So I struggle with it. I don't, I I, I don't, I would rather not do it. Um, I, I think the church, there's a sense in which we are experiencing a form of exile. And if you look at exile in the old Testament, there's things that the, that the people of God cannot do while they're in exile. Um, they can't go to the temple. Uh, they can't, you know, have a tabernacle. So there's a sense in which we get to experience some of that. Again, having said that, I think if churches are doing communion online, like, I mean, do it well. It's just not, you know, for us, it's not, and I'm a communion every week guy. I, I've been at a church where we did communion every week and absolutely loved it. And I, I'm mm-hmm. again. I find myself moving more and more to a sacramental view of communion. But with that, that book will be uh, well. I've, read. I've read I've read bits and pieces of it, so you know enough to prove a point, not enough to actually sit down and read it because I'm a jerk. But the idea of of communion being sacramental and in that, not that there's any thing mystical or magical about the elements in and of themselves, but by being obedient to Christ, you are receiving grace simply by being obedient to what Christ has commanded us to do as a church, but also with that, the idea of the priesthood of believers. So because I'm the one with the piece of paper on my wall um, and three letters in front of my name, that doesn't make me any more 
entitled or authoritative to bless a piece of bread or juice for for that use. And so one thing that we encouraged was, hey, um, yes, we're doing communion. And we, we were in Florida. We have a lot of empty nesters. We have a lot of older people living alone, but we also have a lot of families at our church. And so we said, you know, for communion, take communion as a family. You know, mom or dad, you lead the serving of communion to your believing children and make it a special thing like that because you have just as much priesthood as I do, which sounds, when I say it like that, I sound very Mormon. You have priesthood, you have priesthood, you have priesthood, um, which is not, which is not quite what I was going for. It just came out that way. But so the idea that, yes, this is a sacramental thing. This is not just a symbolic piece of bread. This is something that Christ commanded us to do, but he commanded you to do it. He commanded me to do it. And he commanded us to do it. I love, Jeff, what you said about how we're kind of in a form of exodus or um, in a form of exile, rather. Um, I, I mean, summarize, we've had these like really highly conversations from a theological and a practical standpoint in our church. And my position was um, there's churches in China and the Middle East who are going through persecution, who are who desperately want to be a part of participating in different sacraments and they figure out a way. And I believe there's grace for them in their circumstances for them to have communion. And I think that like kind of Jeff, your position is is similar. It's like if churches are doing it, there's grace for them. As long as you don't feel like there's any conviction that you're doing it wrong, I think you're fine. But if there's a conviction that like I'm compromising, I'm doing something weird or whatever, then I think that's a sin for you, according to like what scripture says, where like if it feels like a sin, then it probably is a sin due to your conscience. Um, but I think there's grace. And so I think, uh, man, that was really good. I, I appreciate I'm going to use that phrase. We're, we as a church are in exile right now. And uh, we won't be back until we get that vaccine. Hey, guys, let's go to like the main discussion part of our of our show. I want to talk about specifically since all of us um, have transitioned from either youth ministry or worship ministry and um, our trajectory into this new role wasn't as like, hey, I went to seminary or Bible college to get into this role, but rather we kind of took some paths around different ways. I just want our people to hear kind of like um, – how do we transition from youth ministry or worship ministry into this new lead campus pastor role? What were the circumstances? How did you know you made the right decision? All those kind of things that all kind of included in that conversation. I would love to, to hear from, from each of you about that. Um, so I'm at Alice Drive Baptist Church, and I've been there. I was there about five years doing student ministry, and I actually had the opportunity to hire my best friend as my middle school guy which is really awesome. Um, and then one day, man, it was back in November, the campus pastor right here, he just pulled me in his office and he's also one of my best friends. And he goes, Hey man, I, I need you to know I'm, I'm going to be telling the pastor I'm leaving. I said, I said, what? Yeah, I'm going, it kind of shocked me. Cause I, I, I met him in seminary. That's one of the reasons I got out here and for him to leave, I was just kind of floored, um, in a, in a, in a grief cycle, I guess you would call it as well. And then um, the second he left, literally he left and Pastor Clay, my pastor said, listen, um, do you, is this something you'd be interested in? Because we see you have the DNA of the church and because you've been able to take the student ministry and make it carry the mission, vision, values of Alice Drive. We think you could do this with adults. And, and I'm just going to level with you. My first response was, was no, just to be honest. It was, <laughs> they, I, I appreciate the honor, but I'm good. Um and and then I had a check in with my pastor. My supervisor's name is Pastor Todd Fleming. He's um kind of like the admin pastor, executive pastor. And he said, "Hey, it's cool if you say no, 
But if you are, you're saying no to a real thing. You know, like I know you said it just because I said, well, then I'm going to pray about it. Um, So I started praying about it and it was really interesting. As I prayed about it, I started seeing where this campus could be. Um, I started getting a vision for what it could become. And uh, I actually called up a good friend of mine named Sean and I started talking and I was saying, this is what it could become. But I really love student ministry. And uh, he goes, but you know what you never said in this whole entire process? I said, what? He goes, you never said you were worried about the student ministry. Like you have vision for where you could go, but you never once said, if I leave, it might fall apart because there's great leadership at that student ministry. You hired your best friend. You've got a great um, girls, girls minister out there. Things are going really well. And uh, he kind of left me just sitting in that. <laughs> and, uh, and finally, just to boil it all down, um, I'm a reform boy too. I fit in some of y'all's camps. Um, so what I'm about to say doesn't really fit into my own theological construct, but I felt like I got to a place and God was like, Hey, here's this, these two paths in front of you. You've been a student pastor for 15 years. And I really do felt like he was saying, you can continue being a student pastor and I will honor that. And I will bless that. Even my own senior pastor was like, you have good tenure left in student ministry, Dale. Like, you don't have to do this. Like, just pray about it. Um, And I felt like that was one of the options. And the other option was, okay, don't choose your career, choose the church. And that's kind of how it was framed in front of me. Do you want to lean into your career or do you want to lean into this local body, this church? And uh, when I frame, when it was kind of put hit with me like that, it's like, I'm, I'm always going to choose the church. That's just how God made me. I'm going to lean into the church. And, uh, and as soon as I said that, it became clear, well, then where in our church needs a pastor now, you know, and uh, the student ministry had a great guy at the helm. And uh, God says, I think it's time I change your adjective. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, like you're not a student pastor anymore. You're going to be a campus pastor and um, making that transition, man, that was very difficult. I'm not even gonna lie. It was very difficult because uh, at, when I did leave, you all, you know, youth pastors dream is to leave it well fair. It's a double-edged sword fellas. Cause like when you leave it and then it starts doing even better, you're like, dang, you know, like a couple weeks ago we had to, we had to shut our campus down because the COVID popped Meanwhile, the same day students took a hundred kids to camp, which that's a whole different conversation, but it's like hits you in the pride. And I realized kind of what Frank was saying, I think in our last podcast, that, that grief from transition is really operating on two levels. It's like you have grief because you miss these people. And I know it's not wise for me to dip back in there right now because those kids are still transitioning. But then also you have the grief of like your identity's changed. And like, I came here and a month later, um, um, one month later, the world fell apart. So now you're like, I'm in this new role. Am I even doing it right? <laughs> you know? So right now, I think very much so. Um, how how do you transition was kind of the last question. I really am still in the thick of transition. You know, still trying to get to know the people. That not gathering thing on Sunday really, really stinks. Because that's where you get to, a lot of times, have that first interaction with some of your congregants. So, yeah, it was a lot of... um it was the grief, but it was also joy. And now it's uh, anticipation. I think that's how I would summarize it up. Uh, so I was at a church for six years coming out of seminary and I was hired as the, the youth pastor there. And then about three plus years into my time there, the 
associate pastor had left and taken a church in Wisconsin, and they looked to bring in another associate pastor, and then that looked like it wasn't going to happen. So after about a year of me being the youth pastor in title, but doing the full-time job of the uh, associate pastor as well, you know, all of his preaching responsibilities and the all of the other stuff that went with that, um, one of our elders came to me and said, Andrew, you just need to to move into this role. And our my senior pastor at the time um, had some health issues that were not being made public to the church, but I was very aware of them. And it was kind of, okay, someone has to be the the barrier between him and the congregation. And they're either going to bring someone in that has no idea what's going on, or I'm the one person that can step into that. So after, so I was at this church for six years, that pastor was retiring due to his health issues. And so it was time to go. The, the church in the, the bylaws of that denomination, it was the associate pastor cannot assume the position of senior pastor in that church because we want churches to make the right decision, not the emotional decision or the nostalgic position. So I knew that my time at that church was going to run out either that, or it was going to be really awkward for me to preach for 40 Sundays and then be in the front row when the new lead pastor showed up. And so at that point we began praying and saying, all right, God, what do you, what do you have for us? And it was, do you want us to be the, you know, do you want me to be the the youth pastor who's in his fifties mentoring 22 year old youth pastors coming out of Bible college? Cause that's a great gig. And I would love to have that gig, but God, if there's something else that you have for me, let me know. So we sent resumes and worked with the search organizations and everything. And the, there were two multi-site churches that wanted me as the the head youth guy. And then there was this little church, a block off Main Street in the town that I grew up in, that was in the same little denomination that Tim was in, that it just made absolutely no sense whatsoever for me to take that position instead of the two cool church youth pastor gigs. And my wife and I started praying and praying and praying. And all along, I had been praying, God, if the position that I find next could be at least give us the potential of a 30-year job, that would be spectacular. I had been praying, God, whatever job comes next, if there could be the possibility of a of a long-term 30-year career at that church, that's what I want to move towards. Because my mentor, the, the two previous pastors that the church I had served at had both been there for 26 years plus. And so this position opened up and it worked out. And meanwhile, my wife told me after the fact that her prayer the whole time had been, God, please don't make us move. Please don't make us move. Please don't make us move. Cause we live in a house that her grandparents had built in the fifties. And so it was a situation where um, God answered both of our prayers and it's been an exciting couple of years, but it was not quite how I would have expected my career to turn. I was never one of those Oh, youth ministry is a stepping stone. Someday I'm going to be a real grown-up pastors. I thought I was going to be a youth pastor until I was 90. But here we are. And for us, the transition, it was tough because some of our closest friends were at that church. And we're in the same county that that other church was. But there are about 600,000 people between where that church is and where our church is now. And so it was it was fairly easy to be like, you know what? I could check in and I could go and check on my kids and some of the ones that I was closest to. You know, I would continue to text them and I would show up at a graduation and things, but we were far enough away that it wasn't in your face every day. Here's what's going on. Here's what's going better without you. Here's what's going worse without you. So for me, um, the transition uh, is kind of like a five-year journey through the city of Orlando. 
So I am from an area in Florida called Newport Ritchie. I was, uh, I finished up Bible college, uh, same place that Frank went and, um, got introduced to a church planter in Orlando who was part of the Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, ended up, um, he offered me, uh, 20 grand and I was like, dude, I'm rich. Let's move. So, <laughs> cause I didn't know. And so took the job and, uh, moved to Orlando. Frank and I actually had a business at that time. That's another story for another day, but, uh, we sold that off and I moved to Orlando and that church plant lasted about, I was there for about three months. So I got there in January and I remember the week, I think it was the week either before or after Easter, uh, I was the one that stood up and announced that like we were closing. Um, and it was like, I was just the worship pastor. So it was pretty crazy. And so through, through having done a few meetings with other, uh, pastors in the same denomination in the city, I was able to move to the West side of Orlando and become the worship and youth pastor there, uh, part-time for the first six months I was there. And then they made me, um, still paid part-time, but they made me the assistant pastor. And at that point I started to preach a little bit. One of the elders heard me teaching in youth group and was like, Hey, we need to let this guy preach on Sundays. So, and the pastor wanted to have a rotation. He didn't, he, he didn't love to preach. So, uh, it started out like once every two or three months. And then by my last year there, it was like, I think I preached 15 or 16 times. So a little more than once a month. Um, yeah. And so that's when it, that's the first time I realized that preaching was one of the ways I could do ministry. And, um, from there, our district superintendent, um, who is, uh, that district is all of Florida. There's like 150 churches in our denomination of Florida. So he asked, Hey, can you go to this? Other Alliance Church back on the east side of Orlando, the oldest one in Florida, be part of a interim team. It's a two-year thing, but for sure they'll want to keep you and the other guy who's the other associate. So we went there. I was at that point I became full time with health insurance and stuff. So that's you know, that was part of the equation of uh making the move and knew a lot of friends, left left the church on the west side healthy. Uh I would get calls like four or five months later from elders like hey when the two years is up you think you want to come back so that felt good to know that like i had left things you know in a, in a good way so i went over there and the first year was okay the second year was like crazy like toxic relationships on the elder board and like the guy that was the interim lead pastor had had only ever done pulpit supply before so he didn't like know how to actually pastor people so it was rough. It was really rough. And uh, our last Sunday there was on Christmas Day. And it, it was like we had like eight hour long elder meetings on Saturdays and stuff. It was super intense and crazy. There's a story about a boat that I'll tell at some other point that's pretty nuts. Um, but uh, from there, I knew that calling district superintendents was the way to find a new job. So I did that. We actually candidated in Montana. And then we ended up um, finding out that in this district, which is Maryland, Delaware, Virginia, there was a bunch of open churches at the time, and they were intentionally looking to place younger pastors uh, to replace retirement-aged ones who had retired. So I came here, candidated. Um, how did I know it was the right decision was like everything, and, and I've told my folks this, but at all the worship leader in me that was like, you know, anal retentive about like the way services went, like none of that stuff was happening here when I got here. It was like they were, you know, they were doing like a 25 minute long uh, prayer sharing time in the middle of a public service. 
they were doing the announcement thing where it was like, anybody else have an announcement they want to make? Like all that super awkward stuff that would have made me mad for some reason when I came here, it didn't. And I just clicked with the people and I just like, I knew it was the right place. Um, uh, grief about, you know, moving not from the last place, really. (laughs) I mean, really the grief was from that last place. Um, and then as far as transition, I mean, you know, it's, I'm coming up on three years and, um, everything that I've read and counselors I've talked to, my father-in-law was a pastor, you know, it's really not till you get into about five years. You really start to, to, for people to see you as their pastor and to, and that's different than student ministry. Cause you know, if you have a high schooler, it's four years, but so, yeah, I mean, things seem to be going okay other than, you know, the last four months, but of a global pandemic. But yeah, that's how I got where I am. Well, my journey into the lead pastor position that I find myself in started uh, a little over 10 years ago. I accepted the the call as director of student ministries at, at the time Lakeview Community Church, where I am currently the lead pastor. And I I love student ministry. I don't say loved. I say love because I, I still love student ministry. It's why I'm still in so many youth pastor Facebook groups and group chats. I, I just, I, I love the community that we found there. Um, I think that community is one of the reasons we're actually launching uh, this podcast and this Facebook group as well, because that community uh, has been so beneficial to me, including my, my time of transition from uh, next gen pastor into lead pastor. And I remember coming back from a from a, a, a Mark Driscoll conference. I think it was like R twelve, something like that, two thousand twelve. And the Lord spoke to me, and I got really bold. And I went to my senior pastor, and I said, um, "I think the Lord has told me that I'm going to take over this church one day." <laughs> And I, I don't, I don't recommend a youth pastor ever saying that to a senior pastor, but when people would ask me, how have you been at the same church for so long? I would always have the same answer. Um, it's because of the leadership here. I, I, I was very open with our leadership. The pastor and I had a great relationship. He believed in student ministry. He was a student ministry guy himself. So we had that kind of open relationship. And then in 2015, um, I got an offer from another church to, uh, it was a campus pastor position that I was exploring and our lead pastor said, Tim, you know, I, I, I kind of have you on a path to take over Lakeview when I, uh, when I do retire and there's no time frame on that, but I want you to know that. And that was when I said, okay, Lord, then I'll, I'll stay here at my, my current church because I think this is where you want me for now. That was 2015. Uh, fast forward three years to 2018. Um, my pastor had just finished uh, reading um, a book on transitioning well and leaving well. So he wanted to come up with a pastoral succession plan. So he did come up with a pastoral succession plan. And in that plan, he named me as the next lead pastor. And the elders voted, approved. And we actually sent that out to the congregation, which got really awkward really fast because there was no date on the plan. It was, hey, someday this is kind of what we see happening. So then from that moment on, it was, well, when is this happening? When is this going to happen? Uh, What's the timeline? And my answer was always the same. I don't know. 
I'm, I'm just here. I was at that time two and a half years into seminary and my hope and dream and goal and prayer was, Lord, let me finish seminary before I have to step into the, the lead pastor role here at Lakeview. And fast forward to 2019, we had some, some financial circumstances as a church and we were actually going to be cutting staff and every staff member was going to see a significant pay cut except me. This was the elder's decision. So very awkward. They, they went in and told our lead pastor, we're going to cut you 50% uh, starting next week. And Tim's not getting cut at all because we want him to go ahead and start um, assuming the mantle, so to speak. So that got very uncomfortable because the next day, <laughs> you know, the pastor and I had a conversation and he said, Tim, we don't have to, you know, really really go along with this. We can just kind of continue doing our own thing. And I said, um, no, we, we can't. <laughs> this is, this is not going to work well. And within a few weeks, uh, there were some other situations floating around too, but within a few weeks, our lead pastor did resign. Uh, he was also the founding pastor of our church. So the only pastor many of our people had ever known. So you're, we're talking 25 years at this church, uh, he resigned and then it sent us in a bit of a tailspin because we had a group of elders at the time who said, we're not so sure we agree with the pastoral succession plan that was approved last year. So they said, we might want to look for other candidates to interview and candidate alongside of Tim and things started bubbling over my prayer and my wife's prayer at that time was God, if you want us out, make it clear because it would be awesome to walk away right now because this really sucks. It got really hard, really messy. A lot of people who I thought were on my team and, and believed in where we were headed, um, weren't it, when things get messy, you, you find out who your friends are real fast and things got messy. And in August of last year, I had nothing to do with this, but a, a petition went out amongst my church. And the petition was, we want to enact the pastoral succession plan immediately. We approved this a year ago. We want to veto the elders. So that circulated amongst all the members of my congregation. Somebody ended up sharing it on Facebook, which is how I saw it. I had no idea about it. So it in, in effect, forced the hand of our current, our former elder board. And they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to interview Tim. We're going to put him through the process. We're going to bring on a search team. We're going to do it all by the book, just as our bylaws say. And if we feel like he is the candidate we want to present before you as uh, the, the next lead pastor, then so be it. So I, I said, okay, let's do it. So they formed the search team. It was not an easy process at all. My my first interview went four and a half hours. They had 115 questions that they asked me. So it was very, very serious. Um, I, I drank six bottles of LaCroix during that one meeting. Um, it was grueling. But again, throughout this whole process, it was just trusting God. If this is really what you want, then there has to be a reason for all this. So my wife and I just said, we're going to trust that this is where God wants us. And then come October of 2019, um, I was put before the congregation and I was not quite unanimously approved. I think it was a uh, 97%. And within a few short weeks of me being voted in as the next lead pastor, 
um, half of our elder board resigned. And we have since uh, been in a bit of a, a rebuilding phase in a lot of ways. And God's been up to some awesome stuff. And that'll all come in another episode of the podcast. But one of the questions you had here was, was there any grief in leaving my old role? Yeah, there was. I Again, I love student ministry. I still do. And this year, my daughter entered student ministry. So I had this dream of, you know, am I going to be a youth pastor while my kids are in youth group and we were right here? And then I stepped in and now my daughter's like, but daddy, you used to do this and you used to do this. And I'm like, I did, baby, but I want you to give our current youth pastor a real shot, even if he's not doing what daddy does. So that's been that's that's going to be something I continue to wrestle with. I'm thankful that I have a great relationship with our current youth pastor. He's awesome. He loves Jesus and loves teenagers. But um, man, if he ever asks me to lead a high school guy's small group, I will say yes, like immediately, because I still want to have a hand in student ministry. So how do you how do you transition well within your own church? Um, you have to trust that this is what God wants for you, because it is not easy to transition well in your own church. We lost a lot of really good people in the process, and I, I shed a lot of tears, and I spent a lot of hours in prayer because I was so close to so many people during this. So not easy, requires a lot of trust, but uh, man, it is a beautiful thing knowing that I, I've stepped into this role, and I have 10 years of relational development with most of my congregation. So that's one of the perks of being able to transition well in your own church. Wow. I mean, I'm just like, I'm like blown away by that story. I mean, the ups and downs in that one. I mean, like, well, but, uh, but he made uh, that story way more PG than it actually is. He, as, (laughs) as his buddy who had the front row seat to everything, if you thought me, uh, taming down the, uh, clergy cliff notes last episode was impressive, (laughs) um, I just want you to know that Tim was way more honoring and kind to some people. Than, than most. Oh, I mean, I I had been. previous elders who would watch the morning after ministry show looking for ammo, and they would then call me after I said something silly or stupid to tell me wow. that I said something wow. silly or stupid. And one actually told me I needed to stop the show, and I said I'm, I'm not I'm not going to stop the morning after ministry show. <laughs> I just can't. I mean, I think like you know, if you do anything. Like, like ministry is one of those jobs where it's not just a job. It's like, it's a part of who you are. It's a calling. It's a, it's a, it's a part of your identity. And so it's so hard for like transitions to go smoothly all the time. Because it's like, if I worked at, if I worked at a grocery store bagging food and I was going to leave that place to start working at a bank, there would be no pain. You know what I'm saying? There's no, there's like that transition isn't going to be that difficult. Um, where like, I mean, all of us had a sense of like, man, like our identity has shifted, our, um, our hearts are, are affected by this. And then, I mean, what you just mentioned, Tim, is like, and in some cases, there's politics involved and there's people who, who want to make things a little bit more difficult than it should be. Um, man, four, four and a half hour interview. I mean, your first mistake is you drink six LaCroix. That's disgusting. LaCroix is the grossest thing Did you ever. have to use the restroom? I was just thinking like, man. <laughs> Multiple Wait. times. The good thing is Tim's really quick at using the restroom. Hey, um, let's uh, answer the question of the day here. Um, usually we'll have questions given to us by people, hopefully, Lord willing. When we launch this Facebook and we go live, we'll be able to answer these questions 
from y'all. But here's a question I want to ask for you guys. We had a very kind of this this episode, episode two, had a much more sincere, serious tone. We talked about conspiracies, kind of like almost in a joking manner, but it got kind of sincere about how we passed them. Talked about COVID stuff, communion, and um, and you know, hearing that story, Tim. I mean, like you know, this was a much more sincere, serious episode. So I want to talk about something. We have those tough Sundays, right? Um, you preach if you have multiple services or you just had a tough sermon or you had a full day of ministry. When you get home, we get you love your spouse. You, you're there for your kids. I, I, I understand that you want to say, like, I spend three hours with my wife just talking to her or I, you know, I play with my kids. Great. But what do you really do to decompress? Like what when you get home, what is the thing you do that's like? This is how I ultimately shed the day away. I want to hear from you guys. What do you guys do? Jacksonville Jaguars football. I mean, when it is not football season, it is very tough for me to decompress on Sundays. My wow. kid, my, my, my wife literally takes the kids upstairs. They know we don't bother daddy while Jaguars football is on because things get um, a little out of hand when I'm decompressing, especially um, knowing that we lose a lot. So <laughs> it's never easy. Love it. Uh, I watch woodworking videos on YouTube and or do woodworking projects at home. Dude, that's you're like Ron Swanson. I like it. Oh, not I mean, Ron Swanson. The guy who plays Ron Swanson. He like in real life is a woodworker. Yeah, Ron Burgundy. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Different guy. Hey, what kind of wood project have you done? Uh, my most recent one is I built my daughter a bed. That's cool, man. Yeah. That's super cool. I, I suddenly feel super inferior. <laughs> no, I, I, I got my own little man cave and generally I'm catching up on all my YouTube subscriptions. I, I love YouTube. I am a YouTuber. So I got a lot of guys like Tim pool and the guys I listen to. And while I'm doing that, I generally have the laptop and I'm just honestly just make, I, I, I make videos as a hobby. It's actually a way I decompress. It's a, my mind is always going a million miles an hour. So if I can turn them into like designs and stuff, so yeah, some YouTube and you know making some videos on Adobe. Man, I just I have to get in the gym. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Stop. That was Andrew Larson, and you all know he's lying. Stop. No. Uh, <laughs> um, that's that's I that's ridiculous. No. Uh, what Tim said about the Jaguars, I am that way about the Tampa Bay Rays, and uh, you know Sunday afternoon sports. So I grew up in a uber fundamentalist household where it was to the point where for a lot of my childhood, if it was not news or sports, it wasn't appropriate to be on the family television. And so um, we also went to a church that had Sunday evening service. And so we would get home from church and rest up for a little bit and go back to church. And so my mom's rule was that I had to take a nap after church on Sunday because she was going to take a nap after church on Sunday. So unless I could sit with my dad and watch whatever sporting event he was watching, I had to take a nap. So from about four, I decided Sunday afternoon means you get home from church and you watch sports. And so this has been a very rough season because as a as a people person, as an extrovert, doing church by myself in front of a camera and then getting home to have no sports to watch after was rough. So I, I miss I miss the Rays. I Dude, miss the Buccaneers. Get into rugby. It's back on. All right. And well, it's cool. They also made NFL Rewind oh, for up. free, so I've been hey. able to – I just go back and rewatch everything. The National Rugby League in Australia is on, so you could watch that. You do know that uh, the Marble Olympics are still going super hot there, right? Y'all know the about Marvel that, right? Marble Olympics? 
Marble. Please tell me y'all know about this. No. <laughs> okay. No for me. Okay. Okay. YouTube. Guilty. All right. If you go to YouTube and type in Marble Runs, oh. there is there's this this company, this dude, he literally makes races done out of marbles and like he commentates them like yes we need a new bro. video because like, his face is so excited right now <laughs> well see okay so you say sports uh but then i remember there is a competitive thing i like and marble olympics <laughs> is awesome I, I can't and my and my two-year-old loves it too so it's it's, it's awesome kids. so it. so for all the other pastors who are like hey what's a what's a rugby you know, Marble Olympics is for you, bro. I promise. Uh, the way I decompress is I do one or two things. I eat, like, something greasy, like Popeye's or some delicious meal that could just be, like, that, that uh, a food so good it makes you take a nap afterwards type of thing. Like, that's that's what I like to do. Because my theory is I'm, I'm a very animated on stage. So, if, especially if I'm preaching, like, I burn a 1,000 calories on stage so I can eat something bad. Easy. And, um, and then, uh, like, lately – Call of Duty, man. I, I got get on my PS4. Uh, my gamer tag is John Calvin sixty five, and uh, <laughs> and I play uh, Modern Warfare, dude. I get I get I get I get out of the gulag, start wrecking cats. Yeah. It's so fun. Um. So uh. So hey, man, this is so great. Uh, go on YouTube. Um, Marble Olympics sponsor us if you want to. Weirdest sport ever. Um. Awesome. But yeah, also like if you're into soccer, which I don't know if anyone's is, like like there's soccer. Bundesliga. Right? I, Bundesliga is back, yeah. Yeah. Um, so hey, this was so much fun. Hey, uh for everyone listening, thanks for listening to the show. Please subscribe wherever you are listening to this. Give us a review. Five stars would be super dope. We would love for you to follow us on social media and get in this Facebook group. You know, we've given these shows. The first three shows are gonna be live right now, and you can listen to them back to back to back to back to back. And then go in our Facebook group and and be and, and let's keep this conversation going. I can't wait to get to know you guys. Follow us on Instagram. All that's in the show notes. With that being said, we'll see you next time. My name is Frank Gill. I'm Jeff Simpson. I'm Delmar Pete. I'm Andrew Larson. And I'm Timothy Miller. <laughs> and we are practically pastoring. See you next time. <laughs>